are listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Joel Kenville, a Ruby and Elm programmer at ThoughtBot. We compare his experiences with Ruby and Elm, discuss how dependency graphs can be applied in teaching, and get into a concept we've never talked about on the podcast before, namely, conditional cardinality. Joel, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show. So you're someone I know who has, for many years, used two programming languages that are, at face value at least, quite different, namely Ruby and Elm, and you like both of them. And that's unusual. I don't find a lot of people who are like, I'm really into Ruby and I'm really into Elm. Definitely some, but not a lot. What do you see as the things that you like about both languages? What do you see as the differences from your perspective? What do you think about them? I think two things that the languages have in, in common. One is that they both really prioritize developer happiness. Mm. Uh, so this sort of cultural design that's built into them. And then just practically the way that the two languages work, they're really built around the developer experience, developer happiness. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really smooth transition for me, uh, hopping between Ruby and then into Elm. I felt right at home. Yeah, I, I so I've, I've done some Ruby and I've done lots of Elm. Uh, and in my experience, I would definitely agree that both languages definitely care about developer happiness. But I do think they approach it from pretty different ways when you get down to the implementation level. Like a thing I've heard a lot of Ruby programmers say is they reached for a method and were pleasantly surprised to find that that existed. That like exactly what they were looking for was right there. A major part of the reason for this is that Ruby does a lot of synonyms. The same method will have several different names in Ruby. The philosophy being, as I understand it, you know, what's the harm? If somebody might guess this, why not try to have it there? Whereas in Elm, it's kind of the opposite where you have one name for everything. And I think the trade-off as I see it, and I'm curious what your perspective is, but the way I see it is sort of like when you're writing code for the first time, that's a really delightful experience to have the different names available. Although the flip side is that if you're like on a team, maybe, and everybody on the team has picked a different one, like one person uses fold, another person uses inject, they're the same thing, they have different names, then maybe you have like stylistic inconsistencies. But I guess there's probably also ways you could address that with tooling and linters and stuff. In my experience, teams often do pick a synonym and standardize for their code base uh-huh. uh, using a linter like RuboCop or something like that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. This is something I've actually been thinking about for Rock because we have some names where like there's just a lot of inconsistency across languages as to what the name is. And in some cases, we're also doing something different than what other languages are doing, like we're trying something out. So the approach that we're trying is we have a document that's names that you might find for these functions in other languages. So like fold is aka reduce or, you know, depending on what someone's expecting to be there, they might not even realize that it already exists. But then on the flip side, yeah, once everybody does learn it, everybody's sort of automatically on the same page with regards to style. Have you put some thought into sort of the different communities that people might be coming to rock from and how to sort of ease that path? Like I've seen some languages will say, oh, if you're coming to our language from Python, here's the like intro to the language that you need if you're coming from Python versus if you're coming from C++, you want to read this other document. For sure. So funny enough, actually, when I first made the repo, there was no tutorial for just like, hey, you know programming, here's how to learn Rock. There was just a document called Rock for Elm Programmers. And I basically just wrote down like, I'm going to assume that you know Elm. Here are the ways that Rock is different from Elm, because that's a much shorter thing to write. Although it's kind of funny because over the years, the language has developed more and more of its own identity. And so that document got longer and longer. And it's still like considerably shorter than the full-blown tutorial, assuming no particular background. But it is kind of interesting to see, like, if you look at the diff of that document, it's like, oh, yeah, this is different. This is different. And now, oh, yeah, also, this is now different. This is, you know, I do think it would be valuable to have that for other languages in the future. I think I personally would feel comfortable writing one for JavaScript, but probably not for like a Python. I just haven't done enough Python, uh, but maybe other people would. That could be something that the community builds as well, right? Totally. If you have a lot of people coming from Python, uh, likely the first few that come will want to write something targeted towards other uh, Pythonistas who are interested in Rock. Sure. I have sort of, uh, strong feelings is the wrong word, but I guess the, the sort of imperative to functional transition, I'm pretty familiar with the things that people commonly trip over, the things that, uh, like sort of the mindset adjustments and things like that. And I've, I've experimented with different techniques, some of which work better than others. So I definitely have opinions on how to do that well. So as a, as a consequence of that, one of the things that I feel most possessive is not quite the right word, but like the things where I'm like, I really want to do this as opposed to like delegating it to someone else 
is actually writing like tutorials and documentation for uh, for various like sort of things that are core to the language. But like you said, I mean, if somebody's coming from a Python background, they're going to know the Python to rock transition path much better than I am personally. So I might have to sort of, uh, I don't know, try and do some like combination of like letting go of that, like wanting to do that myself and, and also just like shifting my mindset towards like, how can I coach other people to like not make the same mistakes I did when I was like, getting started teaching people functional programming? Yeah, I, f- I feel like there's a lot of well-intentioned, but really bad uh, teaching for functional programming out there. I'm curious, you found are sort of the, the places where uh, people who are new to functional programming typically get stuck. And what are maybe some teaching techniques that you found have been most effective to get over those blocks? At least for me, after I got into like specifically Elm, I started thinking a lot more in terms of types. I started thinking a lot more, I started getting a lot more value out of type signatures. One of the subtle things, just small tangent here, one of the subtle things that I really appreciate syntactically about like Elm and Haskell style, like ML family syntax is that type annotations are their own thing. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. All the the modern languages like Rust and TypeScript um, sorbet for Ruby, there's this really strong convention of you add annotations to like individual function arguments. You won't see, for example, a Rust type that's just like, here is the type of this function. It's always like, oh no, here's this argument, colon, and then the type of this argument. And then here's this other argument, name, colon, the type of that argument, name. And there's a pretty big difference in terms of how I think about these things, thinking about it in terms of just the types, the argument names are, they, they get in the way, I think, of thinking about it just as like, this is the type of this function. And that mindset shift, I think was really valuable to me. I think the trap is teaching the types first, like starting off by being like, here's string type, and then here's the type of this and look, type variables. There's the notorious, you know, hello world is like chapter 13, because it's like, well, I can't teach you hello world until you've learned about the IO monad. But that's, of course, not true. You don't have to do that. There's a totally other teaching way. It's just that historically, that's been a common way that it's taught. And I think, honestly, part of the reason that like the typed pure functional programming community has not been bigger than it is, is that that teaching technique really ends up filtering out a lot of people who just don't effectively learn that way. They're like, I want to learn by building a thing, which then means we've got a very strong selection process. And the only people remaining are the ones who do actually effectively learn by learning the types first, etc. Which then when they become teachers later on, they teach it the way that's comfortable for them. And then the cycle perpetuates. What I found is that if you teach types last, and you start by leaning on the type inference really hard and just being like, here's how to build a thing like Hello World is chapter one, you know, or chapter two tops, and then moving on from there. What I found is that people who prefer to learn types last, like people who prefer to learn by like building a thing first, are very happy with this. People who prefer to learn types first are annoyed by this, but they're not lost. So in this technique, nobody gets lost. Whereas if you do it the reverse, people who like to learn types first are very happy. And people who like to build stuff first leave. I've recently been working a lot with dependency graphs as a sort of mental model for a bunch of things. And I feel like it's one of those tools where once you start using it, you see them everywhere. (laughs) And one place that I've started seeing them is in modeling teaching. And kind of like you were saying, the idea of Hello World can't be taught until chapter 13, because first you need to know the IO monad, and first you need to know monads and applicatives and functors. And right. you know, and now you've built this whole chain of dependencies that you need to learn first. And so learning to actually see the real dependencies and say, like, you know what? Hello World does not depend on knowing this other thing right. is useful. The other thing that I've learned with dependency graphs is that they're best resolved from the bottom up rather than the top down. Because assuming you have some sort of root node, uh, if you're trying to resolve from that, you have to resolve all of the other dependent nodes at the same time. Right. So you end up resolving the entire graph at once. And you cannot do that root task that you're trying to do without resolving the whole graph. Mm -hmm. As opposed to when you're working from the bottom up, all of the you might call them leaf nodes, mm-hmm. can all be resolved independently. And yeah. generally, once you've resolved all of those leaf nodes, you now have a new set of leaf nodes that you can resolve independently. And so if you can construct your material such that uh, there is a like small task that you can complete that has no dependencies or like only a single dependency, 
those become leaf nodes in your learning graph and you can resolve it from the bottom up in a way that's very accessible to people. Yeah, that's great. I love that. The other part about resolving the leaf nodes first is that because they don't have dependencies, you have a lot of control as a teacher over which order to choose for them. And at least in my experience, you're absolutely right. There's definitely a big dependency question where it's like, well, I can't really effectively teach this until they know that. So, okay, that's got to come first somehow, but I don't know exactly where. But even once you've got that dependency graph sorted out, there's still a bunch of other factors. This was something that I, I sort of felt that I had an intuition for, but when I was writing Element Action, the Manning editors, the one editor, I guess, uh, Alicia Hyde, <laughs> really like repeated this and like hammered this point home is, don't teach anything until you've motivated it first and then teach it at the last minute. Basically, it's like, we want to do this thing. Uh-oh, we're stuck. We can't do this thing because we don't know how to do X. Oh, good news. I'm about to teach you X. That makes sense from a dependency perspective, but also just from, I think, like a, an emotional perspective. If you're going to not struggle with the concept, if you're going to learn it very easily, then like, okay, maybe you don't need a lot of motivation. But a lot of times people, for one reason or other, find something challenging to learn and they struggle with it a little bit. And so having that motivation helps you power through that and like get over that hurdle and actually learn the thing despite the fact that it's challenging. And that's where I think having all those leaf nodes where it's like, yeah, I could pick any one of these things. Now you can start to look at other criteria like, which of these do I feel I can motivate effectively and make a cool problem that the reader or the student is excited to try and solve with whatever technique I'm about to teach them? I think that's one of the things that really excited me with the Elm community and the way that things were taught there mm. was the the really fast feedback cycle to where you could get something in the browser. Yeah. Uh, kind of the opposite of saying, oh, you're going to spend 13 chapters before you see some text show up in the terminal. Right. Here I'm writing five, 10 lines of code and I see something interactive in the browser. And that is motivating. That is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the sooner you can get to some sort of payoff. Uh, in terms of like, you know, what, what, why do we write software in the first place? It's like, well, so we can run it and see what it does <laughs> and have it give us answers or make cool programs, fun things for us to interact with. Yeah, the sooner you can get to those types of payoffs, I think the better. Absolutely. Speaking of Ruby, before Rails, Ruby was a lot less of a well-known language. And since Rails came out in, I think it was 2005, its popularity just kind of skyrocketed. And Rails is like very much embodies that principle of let's get you something as fast as possible. And there's a lot of tooling for that. I, I went back and rewatched the original sort of pitch video for Rails, which I always recommend that everybody watch because it's got to be, if not the greatest, like one of the greatest, most successful pitches for any programming technology ever. It's like 15 minutes long, you know, build a blog engine in Ruby on Rails in 15 minutes. It's very short. <laughs> and I mean, just nonstop, all he's doing is demoing making stuff very quickly that works and, and is useful. Very rarely have we seen one video like that, I think, pretty directly lead to an entire programming language, ultimately becoming one of the top 10 most widely used languages in the world. But I think you can point to that video and say, yeah, that video did that. And that's, I think, revealing about what people value. You know, you can contrast that with a lot of Haskell books and the relative popularity of Haskell and Ruby. A lot of people I've heard express confusion, like why is, for example, Ruby so popular? and Haskell is not, this is one of the big reasons. And I think it's also a reason that Elm's popularity, even though Elm is very constrained in terms of its maximum possible, I don't know, market share is the right word, but it's really, really hard to try to be a popular compile to JS language. It's such a monoculture. It's like JavaScript and languages that have specifically had the tagline, quote, it's just JavaScript, by which I mean CoffeeScript and TypeScript, both of which had that tagline. If you're not one of those, Elm is like an outlier in terms of how high its popularity is for not being a, it's just JavaScript language in that culture. Right. It compiles to JavaScript, but that's really just a, an implementation detail. Right. Like you said, Elm has a very concrete focus on let's build stuff right now. And I think that's a big part of the explanatory power of why Elm has had such relative success in this really hostile domain for it. And in contrast, there's no monoculture on the server. People can use whatever they want. And I think a big part of the reason that Haskell adoption has not been as relatively successful as Elm has in its domain has been just that, and maybe I have not read it, but I know that Rebecca Skinner set out to write a Haskell book that is explicitly, does not fall into that trap, as I, as I call it. Effective Haskell is the name of her book. I would hesitate to recommend it because I haven't read it. But on the other hand, I certainly recommend the pitch. So worth checking out. This is from uh, Pragmatic Programmers. It's interesting when you think of sort of the, the pitch that different languages and frameworks make. And like Rails is very productivity focused, yeah. whereas something like Haskell is almost more 
it originally was a research language, right? So it's about uh, what you can do with that. Oh, yeah. And a sort of big shock that I had was moving from a project that was working on Rails to moving, working on a project that was using Node and Express. And that has almost like the opposite uh, philosophy that Rails has, <laughs> which is like total freedom. You can make all the choices you want. We will not impose anything on you. Right. But at the same time, now you work on a project that somebody else's work and there are no conventions. Right. And all of the sort of things you're used to having built in are not there. And so you're just like, oh, do I, does this come with a log or do I have to find my own logging library to yep. get server logs? Just all the basic things that you just kind of assume are in a web framework, you have to slot them in yeah. because of this minimalism. But you know, for people who value freedom, maybe that is something you want. That's another similarity, I suppose, between Rails specifically and Elm is that, I mean, I've heard people say like Elm is kind of a language and a framework in the sense that the standard library is just very focused on like, hey, we're building web apps in the browser. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> the last time I used JavaScript, there were definitely multiple different ways, multiple different libraries that people would use for doing like HTTP requests. Maybe now everybody's using fetch like in the standard library. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I bet there's probably still uh, multiple different alternative ways to do that. In Elm, everybody uses the one way to do HTTP. That's it. You can use other things that are built on top of it if you want, but there's a monoculture when it comes to HTTP requests, <laughs> package usage in the uh, Elm ecosystem. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I, I don't think that a huge variety of different ways to do HTTP requests necessarily pays for itself. I never missed that coming from JavaScript of being like, let's spend time and energy arguing about which thing to use and then having it not really matter that much. The delta between them is just not that big. There's a lot of stuff like that in the JavaScript ecosystem. In fact, I mean, JavaScript is probably more notorious for this than any other ecosystem that I can think of. I guess largely because for a very long time, the standard libraries and the tools available out the box were just not great tools. And, and uh, or at least not great tools if you're trying to do like serious engineering as opposed to just a quick script, which is what the language is originally designed for, to be fair. Yeah, definitely. I, I've felt that, I think, having worked in JavaScript for years and even just 10, 15 years ago, there was almost nothing for you in the standard library. Yeah. You wanted to work with arrays or collections and you know, you had for loops and that was kind of it. And you know, you would pull in things like uh underscore was a big kind of game changer. And yeah. Just having each in jQuery right. was a game changer. I remember using jQuery just for yeah, just for stuff like each. Even I was making a really small project and I was like, I don't actually need to do any querying. I just want these basic functions that, <laughs> that make my life easier. That's funny. I, 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 it's been a long time since I thought about that. But yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering that the reasons for its popularity, I think, are pretty different from the structure of the ecosystem. I don't think it became popular because of that freedom, but rather that people sort of needed that freedom in order to compensate for the fact that the defaults were not very good. And so that's just the way the ecosystem evolved was that everybody agreed that they didn't like the default thing. It's kind of like Haskell's <laughs> standard library. The only thing that everyone has consensus on is don't use the prelude that ships out the box where strings are linked lists of characters. Everybody says, you know, agrees, don't do that, but there isn't consensus on what to do instead. And similarly, in the JavaScript world, everybody agrees that, or, or, or used to agree back in the day that like, yeah, don't use these out the box tools. They're inadequate and therefore let's build something new. But of course, different people built different alternatives and, and went in different directions. And then uh, you end up with a sort of fundamentally fragmented ecosystem. I think there's actually a pretty big difference between framework fragmentation, where you have a Vue.js competing with AngularJS or something like that. But when the scope is that big, I don't actually mind that. Like I'm like, okay, this is like a fundamentally different approach to tackling a particular large problem space. What gets annoying is it's like, well, I'm trying to use Vue, and I'm trying to use this library with Vue that does HTTP requests, but it depends on this thing. And then this other library that I'm trying to depend on wants to do a different HTTP request thing. And like, you know, stuff like that, where you have these dependencies, each of which depends on other fundamental, like low level implementations of things. That's where I think things get kind of, uh, kind of messy. How do you feel about scenarios where the community gets to experiment with uh, new language concepts in user land? And then there might be two or three competing ideas and one of them wins out and is then incorporated into the main language. That's a great question. And I'm thinking of, uh, for example... Pascal's language extensions. Well, that's an example of it. I was thinking, again, in JavaScript, 
way promises got brought in. Oh, I see. Because there were a few different competing promise implementations, and eventually one of them got picked and brought into the core language. Right. I mean, so, okay. So I would say that's not something I think of as a language feature so much as a standard library inclusion. Language feature in the sense of like, you couldn't just implement this in user land. Although I guess like based on the way you asked the question, I guess that <laughs> it would have to be a standard library thing, right? Like you can't, the only languages that or I could think of that you could sort of kind of call it uh, like you're implementing language features in user land is like macros, like maybe in lists or something like that. The way I've always thought about it is a language feature is something that can't be implemented in user land. It's something where it's like, this is a primitive that like, if you want to introduce a new one of these, you have to modify the compiler somehow. But okay, but if we're talking about things you can implement in user land, they get the stamp and now they're like part of the standard library or... Yeah, I think uh, I have mixed feelings about that as an approach. So on the one hand, um, you could argue that it will lead to the best outcome in terms of, uh, well, everybody experiments and you try a bunch of different stuff and you get to see how they work out. And then afterwards, you're like, cool, now we know which one is best. Let's use that one. I think there's a couple of flaws in that thinking though. One is quite often what actually I've seen happen in practice is it's not that the best thing wins, it's whichever thing gets most popular wins. Of course. And the reason that it wins is because you don't want to, as the language designer, be like, well, let me standardize on not the thing that most people are using and then ask a bunch of people to change over to my new standardized thing. A lot of people are just going to say like, no, I don't want to. And then it's like, well, now you have a quote unquote standard that is not seeing standard use. That's not great. So there's a strong incentive to go with whatever is popular. The problem is that it would be a much simpler world if what became popular, including in engineering disciplines and programming technologies, was just the best thing. We all know that doesn't happen. There's a ton of variables that go into why something becomes popular. I think it's it's fallacious to assume that just because you have this process where you're letting people try a bunch of different stuff and then picking a winner, that you're going to get the best thing. I think you're much more likely to get the most popular thing. Another concern that I have about that is just by going through the act of creating this incentive structure where you're you're sort of wanting people to experiment with lots of different things, you're creating a fragmented ecosystem, which is a problem that you then hopefully are able to fix later, but might not be able to successfully fix. There might be a lot of people who are just like, yeah, I mean, okay, you made a standard, but like, I've got, you know, three packages that depend on three different alternative implementations, and maybe someday they'll all switch over to the standard, but maybe that's a big rewrite for them, and they're just never going to do it. And now you're kind of stuck with this like fragmented ecosystem, you know, as a consequence of that. Now, to be fair, I also know, like the approach that Elm takes, which is a lot more like, there's one set of primitives and the way that the process works for introducing a new primitive is first of all, it takes a while. I guess they both take a while in, in either case, just in different ways, but there's just a lot of design discussions and then trying out sort of pre-release versions of it, but they're all, it's, it's like there's one pre-release version and the understanding is if you're trying this out, it's like an unstable, this is like potentially subject to change type of a thing. And there's a pretty clear like expectation that it's like, there's going to be a breaking change in the future. Like in like the upcoming release of the language where like this API is likely to actually change. And like you're, if you want to upgrade, you just have to deal with that breaking change. So don't overcommit to it unless you're okay with that. I've seen definitely some people who don't like that approach. People who express frustrations about that. Like I just want the freedom to like play around with this stuff myself. I want to be in, in charge of experimentation on these things. Or they are like, I don't like the breaking change aspect. Like uh, if this thing is going to exist and I can use it, I don't want it to change later. I want you to give me stronger backwards compatibility guarantees if this is going to be the only way that you can do this thing. I get that. But the output of that or the outcome of that that I've seen that I really like is that the Elm package ecosystem is super nice. It's not really fragmented. You do have this like one set of primitives and like that everybody builds on. Honestly, the only levels of fragmentation are things that, for lack of a better term, I don't, I don't see how they could be avoided. Like, for example, uh, you have Elm UI. And Elm UI is like Matt Griffith's library that he made. The pitch is you don't need to write CSS. You can just write in this layout system that was designed from scratch to be really nice and easy to use for building applications. But you have to buy all the way into that. And then, of course, if somebody else releases a widget or something that depends on Elm UI, then okay, now you have to, you know, to some extent buy into that. You can like mix and match a little bit, of course. But I don't really see a way to avoid that. Like if someone's trying to do something fundamentally better, I don't think it would make sense for Elm to say everyone needs to do Elm UI now. No one can no one can use CSS because then you couldn't really have incremental adoption anymore, I don't think. Or it would be like way harder to incrementally adopt Elm, which I don't think is the right trade-off for the language. So right. in as much as having Elm UI exist requires some degree of ecosystem fragmentation, I think that's totally worth it. 
But I don't see ecosystem fragmentation around things where the fragmentation doesn't come with a really big corresponding benefit like that. I have to say, I really appreciate how well thought out and designed Elm's core APIs and libraries are. Yeah. They're very thoughtful. Yeah. I think Evan is a very underrated API designer. I think he's like a great language designer, obviously. But when it comes to like pure functional API design, if you're like, who's the top five pure functional API designers of all time? And I'm like, well, Evan's definitely number one. I don't know who numbers two through five are, but like, I know who number one is. When I look at other ecosystems in functional languages, I'll look at some design for like how to do something. And oftentimes it's using language features that Elm doesn't have. And then I'll be like, oh, but like, I know what the Elm API of this is. And it's like way simpler and actually maybe more powerful in some ways. But like they had strictly more tools to work with here in this problem space. And they came up with something that's not as good as what Evan came up with. That's not easy to do. <laughs> like the HTTP API that Elm has is great. JSON decoding has been adopted by other languages. I always kind of assumed when I first started using the task API in Elm that like all the other functional languages have this somewhere. But I was like, oh, actually, actually, no, they'll do like, IO with error T. And I'm like, what? Why is this so complicated? IO operations can all fail. It's so common for them to fail that C just uses a global mutable variable that you're just always expected to take a look at to see how they might have failed. And I've seen Evan's process for doing this. And I mean, use the word thoughtful. And I think that's a good word to use for it is that like, he spends a ton of time not only thinking about it, but also he calls it literature review. The question he'll ask is like, well, what does everybody else do for this? And you're like, oh, well, JavaScript does this. He's like, no, no, like everybody else. How is this problem solved by not like, you know, 100% of languages, but what are the different popular approaches? And like, until he has an understanding of all the different ways that people are solving this problem, he's like, well, I don't want to miss something. Like you ship this thing and then everybody's like, why don't you just do it like how Swift does it? There's is much better. And they'd be like, oh, Swift, I forgot about, you know, Swift also, I think has, has a lot of really good API designs. I've been very impressed with reading through its libraries, even though I haven't actually written any Swift. Um, and then again, you have like the Elm architecture, which was an intentional simplification of Evan's like earlier, you know, signals-based design. and. I think that was another like really big step forward, this realization of how you could have this really small set of primitives that work really well and, and are sort of easy to learn. It's actually where the uh, Elm's logo comes from, the uh, the Tangram. It's like a puzzle that uh, has a small number of simple primitives, which you can combine to create surprisingly many cool things. I love that the community has taken the Tangram and kind of remixed it for all sorts of things, whether it's a conference logo or a library logo or things. It's a fun sort of community thing that people can do. Yeah, I really like the uh, the Tangram heart somebody made. I don't know who made that, but uh, it looks really nice. I, th I think it's probably cheating because it's not actually just using all Tangram pieces, but still, it's like stylistically distinctive and it looks really nice. And I, I just used it in a presentation like yesterday. Nice. It, it just feels like part of the Elm community's identity is to like, you know, make things out of Tangrams. <laughs> so we're talking earlier about kind of taking inspiration from other languages and I've been taking a lot of inspiration from Elm recently for uh, just more general analysis of code that I'm doing, uh, particularly in Ruby, but this applies more generally. I've been thinking a lot about conditional and branching code and how it can often become a really tangled mess, how to simplify it. And one of the things I got to thinking is uh, in Elm, we often, when we design types, we think in terms of making impossible Values impossible. Here, someone gave a good talk about that. <laughs> um, you know, sort of more formally, we'll talk about the the cardinality of a type and trying to make the cardinality of the type match up with the cardinality of our domain. Uh -huh. And I got to thinking about conditional code and how there's some similarities there. And that oftentimes the implementation of conditional code will have way more paths through than the number of branches in our problem domain. And a classic problem I was applying to this to recently is a multi-step form or a wizard. Oh, yeah. Where you have a bunch of different steps that might come in. You want them all to get processed in one place. And if it's written in a, as a bunch of independent conditions, so if this parameter is present, do this thing mm -hmm. and other independent condition. And then these all kind of combine combinatorially such that then when somebody else wants to come and edit that code, they don't know if I edit this one independent condition, which steps get affected because some of these might right. get shared by multiple steps. Uh, it quickly becomes a really terrible mess and it's hard to, to work with. Yeah, it's a great point that like, I mean, conditions are one of those primitives that are like absolutely essential to programming and permit making a way bigger mess than you might guess just based on like how simple they are as a primitive. So 
what I got to thinking is just like a type, you might want it to have only as many states as there are in your problem domain. You probably want your conditional code to have only as many as many paths as there are in your problem domain. Okay. So count the number of paths, and this might require doing some combinatorial math. And if those are significantly more than the number of paths in your problem domain, which let's say you've got a three-step form, mm -hmm. you probably have three branches in your problem domain. And maybe you have a final state for the, the finish. Uh, then your branching structure probably wants to have four branches, not 27. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you looked at trying to use data structures to kind of enforce that? So I love this idea. And it turns out that their like, conditional code can be converted into a data structure or encoded as a data structure. You might call this defunctionalization. Uh, and it turns out it is that what you want once you apply all the principles of designing good data structure is some type. And that some type will have the same cardinality as there are paths in the, in the conditional. So in my mind now, I start seeing conditional code as having a concept of cardinality, where cardinality is number of paths through it. And there's a direct equivalence between a branching conditional code and a sum type, and they can sort of seamlessly be converted one into the other. So for the sum type, you have a number of different alternatives as its cardinality. So if you have like, like a Boolean as a cardinality of two, because it's just true and false. Right. And then if you have something that's like, you know, red or green or blue, that's a cardinality of three. And then similarly, if you have three different alternative paths you could take, so you have like if then else, and then another if then else under, underneath that else. So I guess it's like kind of an if else if else. And there's three different paths. And so you're calling that a cardinality of three from a conditional perspective, right? Right, right. Cool. And you can sort of combine between the two. And in fact, if you have that data structure, it will naturally lend you to, or it will push you towards writing conditional code to, let's say, render this data structure that will match that cardinality. Huh. I've actually done this refactor in Elm where you have all these, you have a data structure that is much too high cardinality. It's all maybes and booleans and things. Uh -huh. And then you're trying to render it and it's just this deeply nested set of conditions with card combinatorial explosion. And it's hard to follow the logic. Mm. You clean it up into a sum type. And then all of a sudden, how do you want to render that? Well, you're going to case on that sum type and you're going to have three branches, one for each uh, tag. And all of a sudden, by cleaning up the data structure, you also cleaned up the underlying conditional logic. Yeah, it's always really nice when the way that the data structure is written means that there's almost like one obvious way to write the implementation around it. You sit down, you're like, all right, how am I going to implement this? Oh, there's the obvious way, and that's it. <laughs> Which is cool. I, I haven't tried sort of using defunctionalization as a way to clean up complicated conditionals, but that's definitely something worth thinking about. There's got to be some performance impact there, but I mean, maybe in a lot of use cases, it's totally unnoticeable. I don't know if you necessarily need to do it in your implementation. It's more of a uh, problem-solving tool. Okay. In this case, I'm taking complicated Ruby code. And I am writing an Elm data structure, a custom type, because it's such a rich language for describing data. Then using that to then inspire writing cleaner Ruby conditionals. Nice. Can't remember the last time I did that, but I definitely did that in like the early days uh, where I had like a thorny JavaScript problem and the, the code is all in JavaScript. And I was like, well, I'll just like write some Elm to model this. If Hill Wayne were here, he would bring up TLA plus as like kind of the ultimate tool for that for certain problem domains. The whole point of it is like you're going to write code that will help you understand your problem better and where the edge cases are and what you need to take into consideration. And you're not trying to incorporate that into your actual program. You're just using it to understand something really complicated. Yeah, H having it some kind of tool like that, I think, is really powerful. And for me, it's definitely been Elm's custom types. Cool. So we definitely talked bunch about like Elm and Ruby. Are there any things that you like about one and wish the other had? Um, I mean, the types, right, are complete opposites. Sure. I think the approach to Booleans. Okay. Um, Ruby is, leans into truthiness and falsiness. Right. And it for most things it does, it doesn't really care whether you have a true Boolean, like a real true or false. 
I think that's something I've had to come to terms with, <laughs> that it doesn't really matter what you return. It doesn't have to be a true Boolean. Yeah. I have a colleague, Mike Burns, who wrote an article claiming that there is no such thing as truth or false in Ruby. It's all truthy or falsy, and that Booleans are not a thing from the perspective of the language um, in terms of how you use it. And I, I like forcing things down to exactly two values. <laughs> Yeah, get that cardinality lower. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's a slightly different approach. And that I think has some subtle uh, impacts on how you design certain things, particularly around uh, when you might want to return a nil. Mm, yeah, because nil is falsy. Yes, exactly. One thing that having explicit type system, and I think particularly the way Elm has chosen to do it, is that it really has helped me rethink nullability and uncertainty in code just because. It's right there staring you in your face, that function signature that just screams at you, hey, there's uncertainty in this function. And a lot of work that I've done in Elm has been, how do I separate the uncertainty from the certainty in my code? Right. And that's kind of something that now that I've had to do it explicitly in Elm, I can bring that to, Elm, to Ruby where it's much more implicit. And I think I've had a much better time dealing with nullability there now. Have you tried a sorbet for Ruby? I have not tried types with Ruby. Okay. I'm trying to remember if it has a concept of nullability, because I know a lot of modern gradual type systems have started to include the notion of nullability annotations. Like usually it's like a question mark, which means like this thing is or is not. They basically explicitly modeling the uncertainty without changing the APIs. Right. Which is cool. I would have really liked that in my early days with Ruby. <laughs> so what about the other way around? Like, uh, are there things that from your perspective, you're like, I would love it if Elm, you know, didn't necessarily directly port this thing from Ruby, but like, you know, if Elm could be more like Ruby in this particular way, because this is a thing you'd like about Ruby. I think a thing that I do appreciate about Ruby is that it has a lot of really rich APIs. Elm has really well-designed APIs, but they're sparse. Mm. I think that's not on purpose. Evan has been very careful about adding things in that he might then ha want to remove later. Sure. But sometimes that does lead to having to write sort of common utility functions myself or having to look for a community implementation since kind of pulling in three or four different extra packages because I want some convenience list functions or string functions, things like that. Okay, this is a whole other tangent. I have been recently using a note-taking system uh, inspired by Zettelkasten. Have you heard of that? I have not. So Zettelkasten is a note-taking system created by some German researcher back in the day based on note cards. Okay. And the idea is that all research, all active creation has byproducts and you want to capture them in sort of atomic form. So each idea is in this system, a note card. I have a digital system, but the power then comes from interlinking them. And so oftentimes new knowledge is created not so much just by creating new knowledge, but by making connections between existing pieces of knowledge. Uh -huh. And so the idea is that when you have an idea or you read a book or listen to a conference talk, you create a new note that is very small, scoped down. It's an atomic idea. And then you go through your note-taking system and you find other similar notes to hyperlink to. And when you do, that will often generate new ideas. And so you might create yet another card. Or even just the fact that you made a connection makes that original idea so much richer. It adds a whole other dimension. Interesting. Okay. Over time, you also build ideas, and you might just have one small idea uh, from reading one paper, and then another similar idea that connects to it uh, from a conference talk, and then from reading a book. Then later on, you can come back and look at it and say, oh, I have the string of three different notes that all interconnect together from different sources over the course of two years. Now I can write an article or give a talk given that, combining these three together. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't have like much of a process for coming up with talk ideas, but I have found that oftentimes it does come from things like that. Like I definitely don't formally follow this process, but just realizing like a connection between a couple of different ideas and then kind of having this instinct like, is there a talk here? Like, is there, is there, and, and oftentimes, Framing it that way, not in terms of like, is there an interesting idea here, but rather, is there a talk here actually helps me understand what the idea is because I start thinking about like, well, okay, let's say it was a talk. How would I go about 
presenting it? What's the interesting thing to focus on? And it kind of helps focus my brain on exploring the idea in a way that's like kind of concrete and, and becomes something deliverable as opposed to just letting my mind wander and be like, oh, those things are related. Neat. So in this note-taking system, uh, I have probably five or six notes that relate to uh, some of the ideas I was talking about. So for example, I have a note uh, purely dedicated to the idea that a branching code can have cardinality and what that means. Um, I write my notes in prose, so they could more or less be copy-pasted into a blog post. I find that Writing in prose helps me get my ideas uh, a little bit more uh, depth, helps me think about them a little bit more than just bullet points. Mm. But at the same time, I keep them really scoped. They're generally a paragraph because I try to keep them atomic. So in this case, you know, when I typically the title is a thesis statement. It's a thesis statement and then a paragraph explanation, maybe a diagram or a code example. Huh. So in this case, the thesis is a branching code cardinality so it sounds like the the purpose that the note-taking system serves for you is similar to the purpose of my like is there a talk here which is to give you sort of some structure for how to explore the idea yes it allows me to explore the idea it allows me to build content i think it allows me to link my thoughts over time because while i'm thinking about this i have a lot of ideas and things that branch off of this idea of oh well if i accept that conditional code has cardinality then what are some of the implications yeah but maybe i'll have a thought year from now that could really connect very well to that. But if it's not top of mind, I might not make that connection. Mm. Whereas having this in a longer term storage, now I can make that connection and might be in a completely different domain and realizing, wait a minute, this other idea that is feels unrelated actually is kind of has a same relationship to something else as the idea of uh, branching code having cardinality. Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned like dependency graphs earlier as, as also being something that you've been pretty interested in. I've been thinking of not dependency graphs per se, but dependencies in general as a potential way to explain what I like about pure functional programming, because this is something that I've struggled to articulate in a concise way, I guess. But there's something about when I see a, if I know the language is pure, and so the types are telling me like, the only way there can be an effect here is if I see it in the type. I'm able to rely on the invariant. There is no effect here. I guess you could look at it as a dependency graph perspective, but you could say like, I can look at the type of a function without knowing the names of the arguments, without looking at any line of implementation inside of it, just immediately know what it depends on. It's like, okay, this thing, if it doesn't return any effects, like if it doesn't return an IO or a task or whatever the language calls it, I just know those arguments are the only dependencies. That's, that's all it's looking at. Everything else is going to be a hard-coded constant. In contrast, as soon as it returns an IO or as soon as it returns a task, now all bets are off because that could be reading from some state. It could be writing to some state and then chained together with something that later reads from that state. So suddenly this becomes coupled to potentially lots more things. And that's, I think, part of the reason that I have, and like I think most people who, basically everybody who ends up using functional languages does not just try to wrap everything in an IO or wrap everything in a task. It's because you give that up. You give up the ability to explicitly see the dependencies and the type. And so I think that's why a lot of pure functional code tends to be written in a style where you do try to minimize effects as much as possible because there's a really big benefit to that. You get you, you suddenly get a much clearer, easier understanding of sort of what your dependency graph is and like which code depends on which other code just by looking at the types. And you cannot get that unless those types are not actually doing any effects. So there's this natural incentive to organize your code in a way where as few functions as possible are doing effects and as many functions as possible are doing non-effectful things. I've recently been experimenting with using dependency graphs to model effects in a pure functional system, mm. starting just looking at what are the actual effects that I'm doing. So if I'm making a bunch of HTTP requests, draw a box for every HTTP request that my system makes. Yeah. Then draw arrows to say which ones require information from other ones before they can be made. And you end up with a dependency graph of all the effects in your system and how they depend on each other. There's some really fun kind of properties that come out of that. If you see a bunch of effects that are just siblings of each other, you know that they will be combined applicatively. You just kind of see that visually. I see. As opposed to seeing sort of a vertical chain of like one depends on a thing, depends on another thing. You know that's going to be some monadic combinations. 
you get to sort of see the applicatives in monads visually in the graph, you don't even have to know the terms. You just know that, oh, these are dependent combinations versus independent combinations. I guess you can also tell like which things can be done concurrently and which things like, you know, are blocked on previous steps. Yes. And that's just a property of dependency graphs in general, right? What things can be done concurrently versus what things have a, uh, a serial dependency on each other. Sure. Which helps to reinforce for me a sort of mental model that I have is that in general, applicatives are parallel, whereas monads are serial. There are asterisks around that, but that's sort of a sort of broad mental model that I have. Yeah. I appreciate that. Something we've been experimenting with in Rock is this idea of basically adding a third type parameter to task, which actually tracks what type of effect is happening. So task in Elm has success. What does this task produce if it, if it succeeds? And the error type, you know, what happens if it fails? Like what different ways can it fail? The experiment is what if we had a third one that says what types of effects is this doing? So you can explicitly see, for example, is this doing HTTP? Is this doing file IO? this uh, just you know reading or writing for the console and there's some interesting like pros and cons to this one of the nice things about it is that if I'm, again from a dependency perspective i'm trying to think is this depending on you know this server being up or something well if it doesn't do an http i'm like no it sure doesn't <laughs> it's just like writing to the disk that's all it's doing but on the other hand I can already see myself wanting more granularity than that like for example i might want to know does this chain of functions hit the login server or does it hit any third-party stuff, or is it only hitting our like own internal stuff? And the current design, it neither supports that nor makes it particularly easy to do that. And there's some design challenges around trying to make that ergonomic. But I, I sure like the idea of being able to have that reflected in my types. I don't actually know if I would like it in practice. It might also just be annoying to have to like do all the bookkeeping around that. Or this thing calls that thing, and so now the type changes again. I want to hit a new service, and now I have to go change like eight type signatures. It's not without its downsides. It's interesting to think about what are the additional pieces of information that might be helpful to us, and are there ways that we can try to expose that in ways that feel nice and, and don't turn our way so much as they help us? I often think of type parameters like that less in the lens of like, what can I learn or what can this give me, and more in terms of what will it allow me to remove? Uh, so in particular, are there functions that I would want to write I would like to only run on data from the login API. If I capture this in a type signature, the compiler can enforce that this function only runs on data from the login API. Yeah, I mean, that would be really cool. I'm really excited to see what you do with that, then sort of what the community gets to do with it. <laughs> Me too. It's all, it's all the experiment stage at this point. <laughs> I could see kind of hacking that in, in user land with some kind of wrapper type, uh, maybe wrapping a task or something like that. That could get really clunky. I guess it's getting closer to the, uh, I guess what's called the effect pattern in, in Elm. Yeah, so it's without going down a huge rabbit hole, I, I kind of think that it's somewhat likely to end up being the other way around in the sense of, I think there will, I, I think there's a pretty good chance that there will end up being three type parameter task being the normal thing. And then some people for convenience will rewrap that into a two type parameter version that's just like all the effect types of their program. Or actually have something that we got from, I think, Rust? I forget originally where this came from, but do you want in any rock type annotation, you can put an underscore that basically says, I'm not going to annotate this, just let type inference take care of it. So not in any type, uh, but it is like a, I don't want to annotate this part because maybe it's like big and I don't want to write it out and I don't think I'm going to get value out of writing it out. Interesting. So it's almost like a partial annotation. Then. Exactly. But another potential use case for that is you're saying like, well... I have a bunch of code in here where I don't want to bother annotating what the effect type is because I don't care to look at that all the time. But if I ever do want to know what it is, I can just use like, you know, like in the editor, we have this thing. The editor is like not close to being like usable as a daily driver, but we do have something where you can just highlight any type, which includes one of these underscores. and It'll just tell you what, what the type is. So type inference still knows what the type is there. Just didn't write it down in the source code but you can still have access to it. So that's a cultural convention where it's like the information's there if you ever want to go ask for it. And one potential benefit of that design is that, well, there's a pro and con there, um, which is that if you change that type, like you introduce a new effect somewhere, it doesn't break all your type annotations. On the one hand, that's convenient because it means you don't have to go change a bunch of type annotations. On the other hand, it means that you no longer are getting a warning if you do that. Like the, you, you don't know that that's happened. Um, and maybe you want to actually prevent that. So kind of my thinking is that it seems still like a potentially reasonable convention because if there are any points where 
want to guard against that and you want to be like, this path really, really, really only needs to hit login and not anything else, maybe you can do that. You can you can explicitly annotate that one and then use underscore in a bunch of other places where you're like, yeah, I don't care. We'll see. Like I said, it's kind of early days exploration when it comes to that part. <laughs> There's something about type systems that I really appreciate, which is sort of having two sources of truth for what a piece of code should do. You have the actual implementation and then you have the type signature. And the compiler is really just checking that those two are consistent with each True. other. Yeah. Um, and when you get an error, uh, I think a lot of people assume, oh, it must be because my code is wrong. Sometimes it's the opposite. Right. It's that your code is correct, but the type signature is not. True. Because you had to write it twice in sort of two independent formats, you can now have a tool that checks that the two are in sync. Right. It's very similar to even like uh, when you write tests for code have implementation, you have a test, both are two sources of truth to try to say what your program does. If you get a failure, generally it's assumed that the code is wrong, but it could be the test that's incorrect. <laughs> right. But the practice of writing two sources of truth and then comparing their outputs and seeing are they consistent, I think is uh, something that has value and something that we find a lot of different ways of doing in software. I think that's actually a good example of why a lot of people say types or tests? No, I want both. It's because it gives you three different checks. If all three of them agree, then you have even more confidence that you got it right because you're sort of approaching it from three different angles. Types and tests sort of agree and disagree about different parts of the program um, and, and cover different sort of parts of the, the spectrum of what can go wrong. And worth noting that you said the type annotation and the implementation might disagree. That's true for Elm, but that's not true for every language. There's lots of languages where the type is a really important part of, like, is it maybe part of the implementation or required in order to implement it. So in Elm, the types are optional because of inference. Right. I find that I tend to write them all the time anyway, because I want those two sources of truth. Sure. Cool. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I don't think so. I was trying to think, uh, there's nothing top of mind. The, the, the one thing I was excited to chat about was the using the custom types as a model for uh, branching code. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me. This is a really fun conversation. Uh, talked about some stuff we haven't talked about anywhere else in the podcast. So uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>